0: It's just like when I first went looking for the Yowie and after a while couldn't find it, then I started looking for the Loch Ness Monster, the Tasmanian Tiger, Bunyips, Sea Serpents, whatever.
1: My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Tim the Yowie Man is one of Australia's great explorers. In the tradition of Robert Burke, Douglas Mawson and William Lawson, he travels around Australia uncovering interesting parts of the world and writing about them for newspapers, uh, in books, of which he has four, in films, in which he also has four. Uh, born in Camden as Timothy Bull, uh, Tim the Yowie Man changed his name by Deedpole uh, after a sighting of a Yowie in 1994. Uh, he has two daughters and lives in Canberra, uh, and his intrepid uh, travels have brought him here to my office to discuss, uh, discuss his life. Tim, thanks so much for appearing on the Good Life podcast today.
0: Thanks so much for inviting me, Andrew. It was, it was an expedition to get here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so as you were growing up, was exploration a, a part, of, uh, part of your life? How did you get the exploration bug?
0: Well, when I was growing up, I actually don't think I had it. Um, the exploration bug um, really came a little bit later in life um i I'd, I'd gone to university uh studied economics law of all things wise choice uh well, at the time I thought it was wise yes and 'm sure I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you, you you know that it's wise uh, but when I started working um, in a career in the public service working in those in that field, I thought there's got to be more to life than this I, I I started feeling like I needed to get out I needed to get out and explore I needed to get out and and walk and get my hands dirty, my feet dirty. I felt like I'd spent so much of my life up until then just um, uh, trying to succeed at school and university and get the job. Then when I got the job, I didn't really want it. I wanted to go explore.
1: So uh, you, yeah, studied at the Australian National University, and it was while doing a willingness to pay study uh, yes. of, uh, of of national national parks that you uh, you had your extraordinary Yowie encounter. Tell us about that day.
0: Yeah, so that was uh, it was a May it was in May nineteen ninety four, and yeah, my, I was doing the university thesis uh, a thesis for my honours year in economics on valuing sort of the natural areas around Canberra, and. To do that, I had to interview bushwalkers, of which up in the Brindabellas, there's not that many. You know, it's not like walking down around Lake Burley Griffin. You've got to go searching for them. Uh, So I went up to a place called Mount Franklin uh, in in, in the Brindabellas, parked my car near the chalet, the car park there, and went up on a walk because I saw other cars were in that car park, thought there were other people up there um, going for a walk. Uh, It was around dusk, sort of got a little way along the path up along a, a spur towards the top of Mount Franklin. Well, out of the corner of my eye I saw this movement and I thought oh what's that looked up there and saw this big shape in the bush and thought geez that, that's a big kangaroo but very quickly that changed to me really focusing in on what it was I was seeing and it wasn't a kangaroo Andrew it was a a big black hairy ape like creature it's the only way I can describe it with um, long arms, not much of a neck and it was Crunching through the bush, and only saw it sort of side on, and I was by myself and couldn't find these bushwalkers which were, I was trying to interview. I was a bit scared. My immediate reaction was to turn and run. I, it was a fear of the unknown. Didn't know what is this thing in the Australian bush. So I, I um, at, at the time I thought oh, I'm going to just turn and bolt, run to the car. But I thought. No, this thing, whatever it is, could chase me. Self-preservation here, I'll, I'll walk backwards, keeping my eye on it. If it starts charging at me, then then I'll run, but I need to get away. Maybe it hasn't seen me yet, so I'll step backwards um, for what seemed like um, a minute or so, but on reflection it was only a short period of time. Got back to the fire trail, then I ran to the car. And I, I kept that story to myself for a, a short period of time until I told friends, and they said... Uh, I took a lot of courage actually to tell the friends I thought they might have thought I was drinking or magic mushrooms or whatever's up there in the Brindabellas. And I explained to them what I'd seen. And they said, Tim, you have seen the Yowie. And Andrew, at that time, I had no idea what a Yowie was. I'd heard of, you know, the Yeti, Bonnell Snowman, Bigfoot Sasquatch type stories around the world. But I never knew that such a creature some people believe to exist not only in Australia, but also in this spot near where I'd seen it, and uh, that at that moment, that was another moment in my life that I didn't necessarily start the exploration, but I started the exploring in my mind. Then, what there's got to be more, there's got to be more to to what's out there because this can't be explained.
1: So, what did that lead you to, to do then? When you when you say you felt there had to be more, how yeah. did that change you?
0: Well, th- that changed me in that I wanted to get to the bottom of what I'd seen. To me. There's no such... There can't be a big black ape-like creature running around the Australian bush. Uh, the Science just doesn't suggest that that could be the case. So I, I really wanted to get to the what, what had I seen. Had I had some sort of optical illusion? Had I had some sort of waking dream? Or, or is this something else that other people see? And so um, while I was eventually working in the public service, I, I, I spent weekends and holidays travelling around... Australia and then eventually overseas, trying to um, trying to explain what I saw by talking to as many other people that had seen something similar, whether it was in Australia or overseas, and never got to the bottom of it. But in doing that, in doing that, it took me some, to some amazing places, and then and then that gave me even more a, a sense for exploration, for travel. And after a while, I decided, you know what, I don't care if I don't get to the bottom of this. Yowie phenomena even though i saw it i'm stuck with the name tim the Yowie man but you know i'm happy just to let that sit and one day it might be explained um but there's so many other interesting things out there to explore and discover uh how about i go do that rather than just focus on this this Yowie for the rest of my life
1: now, you're, you're a lover of, sci- of science. Yep. You, uh, you, the, science informs a lot of what you, what you write about. You're very interested in, uh, in geology and in history. Yep. Um, and in general, scientists uh, reject the idea that uh, there are such creatures as, yes. as Yeti or Saskatchewan or, or Yowie. Yep. How do you reconcile your love for science yep. with your conviction that 25 years ago you saw a being which, yeah. which is not, not believed in by science? Yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and I look at it in the way that science is evolving. We're discovering new things every every day somewhere in the world in some new field of science. Uh, as I grew up, I felt that when I was at school, we were being taught that, well, I was being taught at least that, you know, we we basically... As, as, as a species, we know everything now. or We're almost on the cusp of knowing everything. We, we, we reign supreme as, as humans. We, we know everything. And and as more and more I've, I've grown older, I've realized that that's not the case. Uh, and that I guess the Yowie for me has become a, a symbol for, hey, there's a lot more things out there to discover. There's a lot more for humans to understand about the way our Earth works. Maybe it can explain Yowies down the track in centuries same with ghosts, who knows? Uh, but, um, but you know, be informed by science, yes, definitely. Um, but uh, don't necessarily rule out things that, um, just because there's there's no evidence of it at that particular time.
1: Now you've spent huge amounts of time uh, trekking through the Australian bush looking yep. for mysterious creatures, including one we know did exist, the uh, Tasmanian tyner, uh, tiger or thylacine. Uh, where did you go looking, looking for that?
0: I've looked for the thylacine uh, in various places. Uh, of course, in Tasmania, also the mainland Australia where it was uh, well, it did exist up until five thousand years ago uh, before the dingo out competed it. But of course yes, Tasmania is the place to go to look for the Tasmanian tiger.
1: which which part of Tasmania? Uh,
0: this is uh, the the northwest corner of Tasmania.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, a, a lot of people say that the the Tasmanian tiger you need to go into the um, you know the, the wilderness areas such as you know the the south the southwest because uh, that's where it's going to be. But of course, the Tasmanian tiger like to live more in open-type grassland and open woodland. So, um, sure, it might have retreated to some of those more wilderness areas, but it was more the northwest corner and sort of moving across into the, the pastoral areas where uh, and grazing areas where I thought there was more chance of, of seeing the thylacine or capturing some sort of evidence of it. And, of course, that's where there were more reports, um, obviously, of course, also because... Um, more people were in that area than in the wilderness, but I thought that's where I'd, I'd focus my my search.
1: Now you did have one moment in Tasmania where you thought you'd actually seen yeah. seen a Tasmanian tiger. Yeah. Tell us about that. I
0: can't remember what a year it is now, but it was, it was pretty early on being Tim the Arowee man because I was I was quite excited by it. I was actually uh, prompted by I think Dick Smith, famous Australian skeptic, had a reward for substantial amount of money if anyone captured any evidence of a of a thylacine, so it's a million dollars or something, yeah. What was yeah. A, million, a million dollars? million dollars, yeah. Uh, and I thought, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna try and you know, I need some money. Pretty
1: good incentive <laughs> for a young bloke, you know, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, so I, I went down and I um, I hired a four wheel drive and I had um, uh, straps, uh, early form of camera video camera on, on the bumper bar and, and drove around at night because the, the the thylacine's you know, nocturnal, uh, and before I headed out, I'd gone to um, the local pub and said, you know, uh, you know, anyone got any recent sightings? This is what I'm doing. And they said, oh, there's another, another tiger hunter. We, we get them through here every couple of weeks. <laughs> and uh didn't really give me much of a lead. Anyway, I went out into the bush um, along some tracks. And uh, and there, uh, it was probably about midnight. I'd been driving only for about two hours or so, just along a, like a fire trail, nondescript fire trail, when then... Suddenly, in my headlights, was this this creature. It was about the size of a Tasmanian tiger, even though I've never seen one living. Of course, seen vision, etc. Of them, uh, it had um, it had the, the telltale stripes down its back, but it seemed to be hobbling a little bit. And I thought, oh, uh, Am I seeing? It? You know, I've seen the yowie. What am I seeing here? Is this is this real? And I, I looked back, and yep, there in front of me was this creature. And it seemed didn't seem to be moving very far, and my heart's beating. You know, this is the most exciting time in my life. You know, I was excited about this. I wasn't scared like I was with the Yowie. This is, I'm seeing a thylacine, thinking a million bucks all this, trying to check if my video was working, which it wasn't, but anyway. <laughs> um, I, 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 I got out of the car and got my other camera to, to go take some um, photos with it. And as I got out of the car, I sort of crept up on it, and it didn't run away. And I thought, there's something I miss here. If this is a wild thylacine, it's gonna run away got a bit closer and then realized it wasn't even a thylacine, uh, but it was a greyhound and with stripes painted on it. (laughs) Um, And I later found out there was, yeah, after I'd been to the pub, a local um, had heard how really enthused I was about to try and find this Tasmanian tiger. We'll teach this little guy, this young guy, a whippersnapper, I think was the word he used, the lesson. And so um, he he went and did that. I'm not sure if they had done it before or afterwards, but I suspect I, I might not have been the only person that fell to that prank.
1: Did you find it funny at the time?
0: No, um, but <laughs> pretty soon afterwards, I did did find it funny because it's a it's a good story to, to, to tell. Uh, but I and uh, you know, at the time I was I was I was a bit annoyed because I was quite excited um, by the prospect of i seen this creature, and then I, I thought of it in retrospect. You know, what are the chances? You know, of me actually. Ride driving along the right track at the right time and capturing it and, and realize yeah I was probably I was out, out to be set up I think. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: what are your fav? What's your favorite way of exploring? Uh, do you tend to, to, to be a minimalist in terms of uh, what you carry?
0: Uh, yeah I, I I like to walk around with uh, as as little as possible. But what I really like to do is I like to go slow. You know, there's these slow movements around which have emerged what in the recent decades or, or so. But I. I and 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 even with like local bushwalking clubs or people want to go for walks, I often don't involve myself in, the, self in those not because not what what they're doing is great fun, but I like to for me it's all about the journey and the exploration, uh, not the end point. So right. you'll never find me wanting to climb Mount Everest or um, even in the mountains here to our to our you know, in, on the Brindabellas. Um, I'm not there to, to climb a peak, I'm there. You know, I might go around, you know, Mount Bimbury or Mount Ginger, our highest peaks, and not even go up to the top. I just want to be out there immersing myself in nature, exploring, uh, appreciating what's there, not, not just, you know, racing to the top. Yep, I'm at the top. Here's my flag. Bang. Let's go down. Done that. What's next? Um, I'd rather go back to that mountain 20 times and every, every visit notice something different, um, you know, a different flower or a different creature running across the track a new footprint or something like that—that's what drives me. I think.
1: What do you uh, carry? What are your kind of must-haves when you're out?
0: Um, compass, um, oh, of course, mobile phone now. E- Eperb. Um, always carry. Um, what is it? What is Eperb? Sorry. Oh, Eperb, like a, an emergency beacon. Right. Uh, a little, um, so that if I do get lost, I can press the button and, you know, someone will know where I am. That's because I'm often out by myself. Uh, So, it's something I guess my wife has imposed upon me, and when I first started exploring, they weren't really around, and then they were thousands of dollars, but now for a couple hundred dollars, you can um, really, um, it's a a good insurance policy, which you hopefully never have to use. Uh, I, um, you know, take a a little bit of food, water, um, that's about it,
1: yeah. And you've uh, you've explored, as you've explored for Bunyip and, uh, and, and uh, Yowies and so on, you've described yourself as a crypto-naturalist. Yeah. Uh, what is a crypto-naturalist? Yeah,
0: that's, that's a good question. If you look it up online, I think you'll just find a photo of myself. <laughs> that's because I... I, I well, break I, it down. What's what What's the crypto? Yeah, mean? crypto means hidden or unknown, um, and naturalist, of course, from, from the natural world. But there, there, is, uh, there are quite a few people in the world that have called for um, themselves for a long time, cryptozoologists. So mm. they're people that do study or look for, um, you know, these cryptids such as bunyips, Tasmanian tigers, Loch Ness monsters, these creatures which are on the fringe, you know, do they exist, don't they? Right, um, they're, they're
1: known as cryptids. They're see.
0: known as cryptids. And and I, I basically, um, people kept asking, well, what do you do? And I, it was hard to explain it in one word. So that's why I sort of used the cryptozoologist, dropped the zoology and, and added the word, changed it to the word nature so that I'm not only just focused on these cryptids, as I've been exploring these cryptids, just like when I first went looking for the Yowie and after a while couldn't find it, then I started looking for the Loch Ness monster, the Tasmanian tiger, bunyips, sea serpents, whatever, in the realm of cryptids. But then that gave me a further passion to look for anything that's a bit unusual out there in nature. So I'd go looking for the northern lights, the the southern lights, the... um, uh, uh, missing or lost pyramids in in in, in Samoan islands, or it, it just extended to that that next step to to nature more broadly. So um, I thought that best summed me up because I, I started quite specific and now have have spread out. And in fact, I still get uh, probably dozens of reports of the Yowie every month or so. But now it's more a case of acknowledging them and a, a little bit of um uh, interaction with whoever sends in those reports I, I don't really go investigating the yowie anymore because there are so many other things out there to explore that the yowie has led me to yes if there was a yowie in my backyard and someone said there's one over the fence there it's there now go, your camera you'll take a photo of it of course i will but I'm, I'm not going to invest huge amounts of time and effort in traveling around australia or the world in search of the yowie type creatures
1: yeah, I mean the sense I get from <coughs> excuse me the sense I get from reading your columns is that uh, you've taken that excitement you had in yes. 1994 over the yowie yeah. and transferred that into a, a true excitement of the unusual uh, in the natu- natural world. I uh, should get you to write my bio. That's exactly that's exactly that's exactly how I I feel and that's exactly
0: that's exactly what I do and I like how you use the word enthusiasm. I just love being out there and and exploring. And it doesn't matter if I don't find what I'm looking for. I've learned that with the Yowie and the Loch Ness Monster, mm. you know, from from years ago, uh, it's all about it's all about the journey. And in fact, sometimes I hope I don't find what I'm looking for because then I won't get to look for it again.
1: You had this wonderful column on uh, dis- discovering spiders on Lake Bathus the yes. other day.
0: So Lake Bathus is a little lake um, near Lake George, which many people know between Sydney and Canberra and, you know, the mysterious waters coming and going. And Lake Bathus is just adjacent to that. Near near Tarago, and I um, I went out there with some with some naturalists, um, fully trained naturalists, uh, not crypto naturalists, uh, from local groups, uh, and we we as we walked out of the lake bed, it looked all uh, it was dry, so completely dry due to the drought, and there were some large boulders quite prominent throughout the lake and looked a bit muddy. There were a couple of little puddles, but all the lake looked like it was covered in a in a white um, almost like a a white blanket uh particularly if you looked at different angles and as we got closer to the lake bed and looked down it was just this intricate web of spiders across the whole lake uh spider webs with these 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 tiny um probably size of your little nail uh spiders and they they were even up uh fence posts that you know hold up the wire that goes across the lake from many years ago and it was like Christo, you know, the artist Christo just come and put this spider web over the whole lake. And uh, the, the naturalists at the time could never work out what this sp- could couldn't identify the spider. Uh, I um, we didn't collect a sample of the spider, but showed photos to other naturals. They couldn't work out the actual spider. Um, we went back a few weeks later and it was all gone. So some people would say, well, isn't that a you've missed an opportunity there to try and explain what this spider was? Well, Sure, we might miss that opportunity, but it does give us another chance to keep going out there and keep having a look, and maybe it will be there again one day. I like the fact that we haven't narrowed down the exact species of spider that was out there. And, of course, new species have been discovered all the time, even in and around Canberra, of spiders.
1: You've also had a bit of uh, fun in uh, in your time in the wild. Uh, Tell us about uh, what you did in the year 2000 when uh, the Americans were filming Survivor in Queensland. Well... I was sitting at my, I was
0: living in a little unit in Kingston at the time, and reports of Tasmanian tigers and Yowies were pretty thin on the ground. That was a time when I was really focused on cryptids. And I thought, what can I do? I'm getting a bit bored here waiting for the, it was a fax, people used to fax me. (laughs) Uh, No faxes, what's going on? Um, So it was just around the time of the Olympics, so there was a lot of focus on Australia and this survivor, this new age for the time, reality TV show from America was filming Survivor number two in Australia, and they said that it was up somewhere in North Queensland. But they weren't going to tell anyone where it was. It was a top secret location, and I thought, how can this bunch of Americans, a big TV company, come with obviously dozens of film crew and and the contestants, and go to a spot in my country, and say no one can find it? So I um. I got a few things together. I think I hired I hired from a local electronic shop a, a satellite phone, which proved very useful. Uh, cost a fortune in those days and was like a brick. But anyway, set off and went to Queensland. Um, everyone knew it was in far north Queensland. And yeah. so I just went to – I just started driving around. I hired a four-wheel drive up there and just started driving around, calling in a town saying, have you heard where the survivor is, where they're filming? And – Eventually, it was narrowed down to one spot near, near Cardwell in, in northern Queensland. But whenever I asked anyone around that area, they sort of would, wouldn't let on. I thought, oh, it's something, maybe they've paid everyone off. So I actually went and um, I thought, there's one way to work out what's going on here because there, there was a, a lot of cars going on the road and they looked like they didn't know it, but how can I, how can I tap into whoever's driving these cars? So I came up with a theory of... Um, Put my car on the side of the road. Put the bonnet up as if I was broken down, right. hoping one of these cars would stop. But they didn't. And I thought, what can I do? And I went back into Cairns, which was the nearest big town. And I went to the local youth hostel and said, "Does anyone want to come with me?" Um, uh, uh, I said, "Does a female want to come with me?" And um, for an, a bit of an adventure, we'll go look around. We're looking. For, I'm looking for a survivor. And so I got this. This young lady was out for a bit of an adventure. and She came with me. And I got her to stand with the, the bonnet up. <laughs> and believe it or not, that worked. <laughs> <People> stand, <laughs> there's this you know, lovely, um, attractive lady from, uh, I think she was from Sweden. And um, people stopped. Suddenly, brakes are slamming on all these guys going past. And I was able to ask them, or she was able to ask them what's going on with Survivor. And she got some leads. One thing led to another. Um, she went back to the hostel. And I then spent the next few months playing games with Um, Mark Burnett from CBS, the American company who producing Survivor, had my satellite phone. uh, It was all high security, you know, on this property where it was being filmed. But I worked out there was a way to get up there, up the river. So I went around (laughs) up the river with my satellite phone and I was calling rival networks in the US explaining what was happening. I didn't know what the contestants' names because I hadn't aired that, but I was explaining what was happening and they loved it. And then uh, uh, suddenly... I ended up, I think it was 40 or 50 radio stations in the US would call me every day <laughs> <laughs> to say what's going on. And then at the, at the end of this, um, you know, I was hiding in the bush basically. And um, at the end of this, this great fun that I was having, um, a lot of those radio stations got together and paid for me to go over the, to the US when, as the show was airing. And we'd go to big cinemas and uh, as the show was airing in the ad breaks, I'd explain some things that were going on behind the scene. But, of course, during all this, CBS and Mark Burnett, the producer, said, no, the Yowie man, this is a guy that's seen a Yowie before. He's making this up. So I thought there's one way to get back at these guys um, to show that I wasn't making it up, apart from the fact all my leads were true, uh, proved to be true. Uh, I hired a helicopter. And in that helicopter, I I had a heap of Ghirardelli chocolates sent over from famous chocolates from the west coast of the U.S., um, and my plan was to drop them on the contestants and hopefully that would, they would see that in, in the filming. Uh, but I, I had difficulty hiring the helicopters because um, CBS had, they were either using every helicopter in the area or they'd paid them not to let others hire them out. So I had to get two mustering choppers from the Northern Territory, which was a thousand kilometres away, <laughs> <laughs> one from, for someone to film in and one for me to be in and drop them out. Anyway, they came over, cost a fortune, but it turned out to be a success because I the, I got a cameraman in the other one filming me dropping all these chocolate to the contestants and then I was able to ship that footage off to the US for the rival networks who paid for it and then we're able to show that hey the Yowie man is there and he's even feeding the contestants not witchetty grubs <laughs> but the, the contestants and Outback Survivor they're eating Ghirardelli chocolate so yeah that was a bit of fun.
1: That sounds fantastic. <laughs> um, and then at a certain stage, speaking of chocolate, you, uh, you get yourself no. confused yes. with, uh, with a chocolate bar. Was it around Sitting the in front of me, you don't look an awful lot like a chocolate bar, but apparently yeah. others thought that you were, in fact, uh, Tim the Chocolate Bar. Tell me about that.
0: Yeah, that was, around, uh, it was all happening around the same time there, around 1999, 2000, 2001. Cadbury Schweppes, um, the company at the time, uh, produced a little chocolate called Yowie. It's like a Kinder Surprise. It's like a little chocolate egg with a... You open it up and there's a toy inside it, and I thought that that's fine. You know, yowie. Anyone can use the word yowie, but um, and I used to people used to give me these as presents all the time. Yeah. Every birthday or Christmas, I'd be hundreds of these yowies would show up on my front door, and I liked them. Uh, but uh, eventually, I got a note in the uh, in the post, uh, a legal note suggesting that uh, hey, Cadbury's aren't too happy with the fact that you're called Tim the Yowie Man. Um, you better start looking at. Uh, uh, well, you, you can't use the name Tim the Owie Man. Um, this is a very much. It's a. Um, I'd. A couple of uh, I guess a year or so earlier had. Um, oh, when were, about six months earlier had put in an application for a trademark, right. for for Tim the Aowie Man, and it was that note that that process that to get a trademark. Uh, approved which had triggered cabri to go okay he's this guy he can't use the word Yowie because we're, we're using it um and so i thought hey i've spent the last six seven years of my life building up this character or this life of tim the Yowie man someone can't just take it away from me they didn't want me to they wanted me to be tim bull or you know I thought at one stage, maybe I could be the artist formerly known as Tim Niawe, Man, <laughs> but, but, but that, that, that proved, uh, yeah, I thought, no, that, that, that's a bit, yeah, that's not very, that's not gonna work. So um, I, it really affected me because with trademark law, uh, you have to, you know, it's obviously a cost involved. And even if you end up winning the case, um, you, there's, no, there's no compensation um, for any cost that you've incurred to win the case. Um, so I went through the trademark courts, and I, um, uh, I, I was concerned that even though I had the obvious argument, I, I was Tim the Alien before Yowie chocolates came about. I had all the, the evidence from all the newspaper, TV, radio interviews. I had them in a big box. Lucky I collected all of them to show I had prior use of the name. Plus, I didn't mind if Yow, if anyone used the word Yowie. Yowie is sort of a name given, generic name given to these, to this um. This so-called mythical beast in Australia, so anyone can use it. I thought, but they Cadbury Swept said, no, we want to protect our intellectual property. No one can use the word Yowie. This Yowie man's got to go. Um, so their main argument was, if a kid goes into a shop, they're not going to know whether they're buying a Yowie chocolate or Tim the Yowie man. And it's it's farcical. <laughs> you laugh, I laugh. They said that it's in it's in the the transcripts. It's it's. Uh, Unbelievable. So I ended up winning the case, but then I was um, concerned that they would take that they'd appeal it because if they appealed it, I think to the federal court, I wouldn't have had enough funds at that stage to to fight it. So I then took it to the media, and it was like I so, said, you know, he's a David Goliath battle. I, I've done nothing wrong. These guys are preventing me from using the name uh, Yowie, and then they they basically pulled out of the process because they got a, a lot of bad publicity. Which um, at the time I'm, I'm glad I, I used that. tactic, I guess, um, because I was in the right, and I believe I was in the right, and everyone I've spoken to since, including, I think, some of the legal eagles from Cadbury, but we won't mention who they were, um, also say, you know, yep, of course, you're in the right, it's just Cadbury trying to protect their their trademark. They've since sold the product, and there's another company now producing them in Australia, which which is fine.
1: And it's around that time you formally changed your name to Tim the Awe Man, is that right?
0: Well... Some suggest that I have, but no. no. Um, um so quite a few documents, some um, uh websites say that, hey, I've changed my name by poll. You don't have to change your name by poll, uh to whatever another name. In Australia, if you know one, if you can show that you're known as that other name, then that can legally be your name. Um but I, I felt once, even though there's this, it's almost a myth, uh, you know, I'm exploring myths and now there's a myth about myself, which as, as, you, as you've seen, you, you've managed to, to identify in your research too, it, nowhere does it say that I didn't change my name. So I've, I've just, everywhere I go and change, people go change it back and say, no, he has changed his name by D-pole sounds, people must like that, I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't change my name, I just, um, but everyone knows me as Tim the Awe Man and that's the only name I use for all purposes except on my passport and driver's license. Which I uh, reckon was going to be your next question. <laughs> who, who, who was it was indeed. You anticipated it there. Um,
1: you also uh, put on uh, ghost tours too, yeah. and uh, I was uh, I was listening to you discussing ghost tours and uh, on, on a, another conversation. As I was going for a pre-dawn run through the uh, camera camera bush this morning with a he- headlamp on, uh, it's not something I recommend because you, uh, you you are quite good at, uh, at talking about the uh, the supernatural in the bush. Um, how do your ghost tours work, and how do you? Uh, create the right atmosphere for a ghost tour to work.
0: Yeah, again, that's, that's that next step. You know, I went from the Yaoi, the cryptids, to this trying to explore the the natural world. And the next step for me was a lot of people would come to me not only with reports of strange animals, but strange things like ghosts or poltergeists. And uh, so I thought, you know, I'll look into this as well. And I've, I've spent a lot of time looking into the ghostly phenomena And a lot of people, because I have been running ghost tours now for close to 20 years, expect me to be a a true believer. But what I do with my ghost tours is it's not a, I'm not out there trying to scare people. I'm not out there trying to say that yes, ghosts do exist. What I do is I collect stories from others who claim to have had something occur, something unusual, ghost, poltergeist, whatever, in a certain location. And then I look at the history of that particular location and and highlight both. And so the the ghost tours have proved very successful. I've been running them for twenty years and never had a tour which hasn't sold out. And I've done thousands of them, which isn't because I'm a good good host. It's because of the the content that we have this rich history, this um, in particularly in the Canberra region, uh, which I like to highlight. By, by using this ghost tour mechanism, if I said, hey, I'm going to do a, a history tour of Hamilton Hume's old house in Yass, i will get about three inquiries. If I say, hey, I'm going to do a, a ghost and history tour yes. of the same place, people will, you know, that, the ghost suddenly triggers a whole wider audience. Not because they think they're going to definitely see a ghost, but because hey, this person's not just going to give us the dry history which you might find on some other tours around the place. This is going to be some of the, the colourful stories but also backed by um, facts and history that did occur at the place. So to me, I I look at these ghost tours as a... Uh, even though I'm not a true believer in ghosts, people see me as, um, as a true believer because I am running these tours but it's more... Um, I'm exposing and highlighting, shining the spotlight, I guess, on this, this history, which otherwise wouldn't be shone on.
1: So ghosts there is standing in for a really good storyteller. I, I think so, but
0: but not, not, But again, not again, I don't rule out the fact that ghosts may exist somehow, even though I've got this scientific, I keep going back to scientific grounding, uh, in 100 years, 1,000 years, we might as a human species be able to explain this, this ghostly phenomena in a very simple way because there's no doubt that a lot of people are seeing things which we commonly describe uh, or experiencing as ghosts. Um, we can't explain them in science today. So science says, you know, it's just people making up stories or having a turn or, or whatever. Uh, but for me, it's more than that. It's, 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 hey, science can't explain it, but it's happening. Here's what's happening. You make up your own mind.
1: You've also recently explored uh, the, these two great firs in uh, Namadji in mm. uh, Nas- National Park. Uh, tell us about the expedition to find them.
0: Well, around Canberra in the 1930s and 40s, a lot of um, uh, new tree species were trial to see if they grow well in, in the conditions here in Canberra uh, and the ACT. And one of those was up at a place called Stockyard Creek high up in the Brindabella Mountains where they planted a whole heap of different uh, fir trees from, from the US. Um, in the 19, around 1990s, they, the Magic National Park had come along. By then, it wasn't the done thing to have um, exotic species in a national park, so they, they got rid of them at this particular arboretum, um, except two because these were the two grandest uh, fir trees they'd sort of survived on and they, they, they were there, they were large, um, and a local forester said, no, let's leave them there. And leave them he did for, you know, 20, 25 years or so. They're still there. And I thought, a ranger told me about them. I'd never heard about these two firs because they're just in a spot which no one goes to. They're off the track. No one goes there anymore. Uh, so uh, I had a recent snowfall um, when the Brindabellas get coated in snow. I thought it'd be nice to see the snow on the, on the fir, you know, like a Christmas tree. Uh, so I arranged with a, a, a ranger to, to, to go to the location and it wasn't an easy feat. I, I, was un, I wasn't really expecting there to be so much snow and so I'd just gone in my normal walking boots. So did the ranger. But we were in um, knee-deep snow for, 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 for a few hours um, and it was, it was quite difficult going. Uh, he eventually led me to the trees and it was just like in this little secret valley. It was all quiet. Uh, some snowflakes actually started to come down while we were there. The only footprints we looked behind were ours and all the other little animals in the area. And it just felt like we'd just come along and just entered this this other world. Uh, and although they're exotic species, and I'm all for, for native species, the fact that, you know, just these two are there, they, they symbolise, you know, what was there in the past without imposing anything negative on the broader environment. And it was just great just to sort of sit under the tree. There was two trees, we sat under one each, and we just sort of we sat there for... I think we were eating, having a moosley bar or something, and we thought it might take five minutes, but we ended up sitting there for half an hour, sometimes ten minutes of silence. Both of us just contemplating, "Hey, isn't this isn't this great? Just near the national capital, busy, um, you know, the power of the country just down there, down the hill. Here we are in this this lovely little spot, which no one might even come to for, for another five years, and here we are experiencing it with this lovely stillness. This, um, you know, it, it just felt really special."
1: And it does speak to the sort of two sides of Tim the Yowie man, which is that you must be very comfortable with your own self and solitude, uh, but you're also terrifically extroverted when it comes to talking to others about your love of the love of the bush. Uh, do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Or where yeah. do you get your energy from? It, it's
0: that's an interesting question, and I, um, a lot of people think I must I must be extroverted, but I consider myself an introvert who. Uh, I guess I almost put the hat on, the Tim the A Man at Cuba, when I've got that on, which I don't at the moment, but I <laughs> I usually do. Uh when I put that on, I, I I'm able to go, Okay, well, you know, I I'm able to almost go into this this character mode where I I where if I am introverted, people aren't gonna listen to me. People aren't going to wanna do the history tour as much with an introvert as, as an extrovert. So I once the hat's on, I can become extroverted. Yeah, <laughs> but I've got to. I've got to. It doesn't necessarily come naturally. I've got to. I've got to think about it. And then before every single tour, before every single interview, I'm. I'm nervous. I. It's. I'm not a. I don't feel I'm. A, I'm natural at, at being an extrovert. I almost push myself to be extrovert because I go. If I'm going to be an extrovert here, this is going to be more suited to the purpose of, you know, of informing and entertaining people than, than if I'm not. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It certainly does, yeah. yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, you recently uh, travelled with your family down uh, the Snowy River uh, on in kayaks. Uh, yeah. How how did you find that expedition?
0: Uh, the Snowy River to me has always been, you know, since I went to school and, you know, the, the ballad, the, the man from Snowy River, you know, the, and I've, this place that, is just beyond reach. You know, I've, I've, you know, you cross the Snowy River at Jindabyne where it's dammed, and I've been to Dalgetty where you see the the old bridge, but I've never been into the real wild, the so-called wild Snowy Country, which is why it's so famous. Because before it was that the river was 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 dammed, and I had an opportunity to go down there uh, with a, an Indigenous um, guide uh, with the family to explore the wilder part of the river. So. It was a real eye-opener for, for several reasons. Firstly, because the solitude of just being on the river was just uh, the, my, my two daughters, my wife, myself, and, and the guide just floating down the river, but the lack of water was extraordinary. We spent more time hauling our rafts full of our, our gear across the rocks. Um, and But you could see everywhere we went, you could see sometimes 10 metres or higher where the original river level flowed and just thinking the the life has has been sucked out of this river but but still by the was, snowy river scheme right yeah by the snowy river scheme in the 1960s yeah by the the damming of of, of the the snowy river at um, various spots including at Ginderbine. and the it became quite uh, it was quite sad actually because here was this river the life had been sucked out of it mm. um, and a lot of what we will see even this part where you know, only literally a, dozen, a few dozen people would see every year, a few dozen humans, in the middle of the Biobar wilderness. But rather than um, seeing amazing natural landscapes and vegetation, it was just, it was infested with weeds, all the topsoil, because it had been grazed heavily uh, in the uh, in the 1900s at all. A lot of that had washed away. It was very, a lot of the trees were dead and died in. There were brumbies. I love horses as much as everyone else, but the brumbies aren't, they... They don't work in that environment. Their hoofs have destroyed all the banks. And it just felt really sad to be seeing this river, which everyone holds up as, you know, the amazing, wild, snowy river, just a mere trickle of its former glory. But on the positive note, being with the Indigenous guide, he was able to take us up into anywhere you stop. He could just take you up, show you a tree, a canoe tree that had been the bark had been taken out to use a, uh, to make a canoe by indigenous people centuries ago little um, bits have been cut out of uh, trees to smoke out possums so they could eat the possum uh, use its fur thousands of stone tools on the ground it was just but of course now an indigenous person couldn't live there because of all the, the topsoil has been stripped away yes the environment just is not what it once was so uh, I guess it was an awakening for those two reasons. It was a great adventure for the kids, um, but it was also quite uh, disappointing to see it uh, in that state.
1: So how do you, now, now that you're a father of, uh, of two daughters, uh, how, how do you inculcate a, a love of nature into them? Uh, what does family exploring look like for the Yowie family?
0: Uh, family exploring are adventures like that adventure down the snowy river, but a lot, uh, usually a lot softer than that there. I, I feel I've taken my own journey as, and become Tim the Alley Man. And I, I I almost hold back on, um, you know, people say, Oh, do do you get your daughters to come help you on the ghost tours? You get your daughters go out on lots of these adventures. They come on some, but, but, but not all. I, I, I'm almost – I think I'm I'm holding them back from what I'm doing because I want them to find their own path. If they see what I'm doing and they love it, then I'll, of course, embrace that. But I am I actively hold them back from coming on a lot of the trips I do uh, because I want them to become themselves. Uh, so, sure, we go out on, on trips, but it's not um, – it's not as a lot of people would think, hey, the Yowie clan's out and they're, they're, they're exploring the wilderness every, every weekend. That's, that's not the case. I might be going out midweek um, for a couple of days and on the weekend we, we might be like every other family, the kids playing netball, going for a cycle around Lake Burley Griffin, et cetera. So it's, it's um, I, I, I of course want to instill the love of nature in them, but I want them to to try and reach out and discover that themselves.
1: Do you have advice for other parents who are trying to get their kids into enjoying the Australian bush but might be a bit nervous about uh, snakes and spiders and running out of water and all that, all that, that sort of thing?
0: Uh, yeah, the, how many people do I know that have been bitten by a snake and, and killed or, or bitten by a snake full stop or bitten by a spider or run out of water? It's, it's not – if you just do a little bit of planning, just do little trips – it can be an afternoon picnic up in the Brindabella, a, a an overnight hike down the the south coast along the along the coastal trail down to the down to the um, towards Eden. There, you don't have to um, suddenly be out there and go for an amazing wilderness trek. Just get out there, get the, the kids to. Um, a lot of parents don't want to take their kids away from the iPads, etc. Because you know kids will kick up a stink and they do but I find and mine do too don't worry about that but after after an hour or so exploring the natural world the kids forget about the iPad momentarily it's like you know what was the iPad and sometimes they can you know they can go a week without having to use the technology that that so many of us now feel we have to Uh, so I think just my best advice is just just give it a go
1: what, do you have favourite walks around uh, Australian cities? So, and you've done so much explore, exploring around the place. If you're in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Canberra, yeah. do you have uh, do you have some tips of, uh, of favourite uh, uh, hikes people ought to ought to? Try?
0: Yeah, well, around Sydney, there's nothing beats the uh, uh, the, the hike through the Royal National Park. Uh, not sure if you have you all done all the way that? from Otford to Pundina? Yeah, yeah, we we actually, although I've lived in Canberra most of my life, we actually lived for a short period of time in the Royal National Park. Really, about So at a place called Mainbar, which is next to to Pandina, which a lot of a lot a lot of people may have heard of. Pandina. I lived in Waterfall when I was. Oh, up here. did you? The yeah. other end of the park. Yes, we might have passed each other on 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 the on the on the coast track. Absolutely. So yeah, so yeah the whole way, just because that is um, uh, it's. A lot of the walk is exposed on cliff tops. You see waterfall, and sometimes coming off into the into the ocean. You see the, the crashing waves. But then you can also go into the little gullies where there's little pockets of rainforest. Um, and also along the walk, as you know, there's um, there's examples of um, how humans have have lived there. You know, more recently Europeans with the huts, little um, fishing huts, which um, are still there and owned in a strange sort of way, by some families right on the beach. And then, all, of course, also the Indigenous, the rock engravings along the yes. way. So there's, there's all the different layers of history on that walk. Um, so, and it's an easy walk. You're not, you know, you're not having to climb kilometres up into the air to, to, to go to a spot. So, yeah, that's one of my favourite walks in, in Australia, for sure, the, the Royal National Park walk. Any others? Oh, ah, uh, uh, around, um, around Canberra? Uh, there's yeah <laughs> there's there's thousands of different ones. i'm trying to think what would be my favorite walk would this be a favorite walk for a family or for a yes um i think a favorite walk for a family is so you, instead of um being along the the coast like the royal national park in sydney you go to the other end of the scale and you, you walk across the main range um which can be a tough walk for a family but is 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 okay to do in a day you're up there on the roof of australia you know from like charlotte's pass across to Osco and back there's sort of a loop you can do part of it on the way you come back is on a fire trail when you're exhausted you can just plot along but the other way you're going up over all the main peaks of australia uh of, of mainland australia um you know um caruthers mount townsend you're looking down on the the um the glacial lakes it's the, the roof of Australia really does fascinate me as well. I'm so glad we live so close to it here, because it's such a, a small portion, such a small percentage of the overall landmass of Australia, but it's such a, a spectacularly beautiful place to, to visit at any time of the year, whether you see all the, in summer or you know, the, the wildflowers, or, or in winter, just the, the cloak of snow that just, just covers it, that most people don't, that are overseas don't even think we have in Australia. So uh, I'd suggest that walk, but in in summer, of course, not in, not in winter, because in winter, um, yeah, it's 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 dangerous and yeah, not advisable to do. Uh,
1: and what about uh, Melbourne, Tasmania? Uh,
0: Tasmania, uh, I, I, I like uh, up on the northwest coast again, where near where I saw my thylacine. Uh, there's some slash greyhound. Yeah, you know, don't tell everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's some there's some there's some lovely walks up through there um it doesn't matter which particular one you you, you pick um but you you do go on a, you know if you if you walk out from um even down as far as strawn and you go up through the old forests of Hew and pine mm. um it, it is I, I like those walks because it gives you the sense of you know when we're talking about the sentinels here in the noble firs up in the Maggi, you're walking through this heavily forested area you know, there's fungi on the ground. You hear water running nearby. It, it takes you to another world. So, uh, so any of any of the walks along the, the west coast of um, uh, of, of Tasmania, um, yeah, they, they'd be right up there. Um, m- one of my other favourite walks or areas to walk is the Gold Coast, Northern New South Wales hinterland. I just feel a sense of energy up there. You've got the Mount Warning Caldera, and if you're walking anywhere any of those mountains, the MacPherson Ranges, or Lamington or Springbrook there's a real sense of energy there that we that I don't feel any in other mm. places around Australia it's it's of course a different climate so there's um you know you're more sweating rather than having to rug up but uh just being out in that rainforest in that rugged country uh that that's that's a lot of fun as well.
1: Tim when are you most happy?
0: Um I'd say i um, I'm most happy uh, two two places, one just at home with the kids and Mrs. Yowie, as she as she doesn't like to be called, sitting around the dining <laughs> table. We, we still like to sit around the dining table and just chat about the day. We say, let's talk about the day, and everyone says uh, three things that they, their top three things of that day, um, one thing that they'd like to change if they could, and a couple of things they're gonna do tomorrow. Just sort of having that connection, uh, uh, connection to family that we try and do that as as, as often as we can yes Um, but from a personal point of view um, I I love actually being by myself I do spend a lot of time by myself and I like nothing more than to go and just sit by a a river having the water just trickle by your classic babbling brook it just sort of you know uh, feel like any problems you might have or any you know are just being washed away by the water and you're there in nature so I like being the moving water
1: What advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Uh, Advice to teenage self would be uh, don't waste time, live every day to its fullest. Uh, uh, You know, in your teenage years, you like to sleep around in bed, and as you get older, you know, you you still, there's a lot of your life still to come, so you don't feel like you have to live life to the fullest. But I since my early twenties, which is also coincides with the period where I lost my mother, um, I decided, okay, I'm going to live life to the fullest um, from this time onwards, um, because you never know what's going to happen the next day. Um, get out there and and, and live every day uh, as if it's your last, um, but within reason.
1: <laughs> was the loss of your mum quite unexpected?
0: Uh, no, it was it was quite expected. She um, had a um, breast cancer, but it was very it was a long, tough, drawn-out death, and it um, was in nineteen ninety-seven. So it was a period of time when, you know, I was just becoming, knowing more about myself, becoming an adult, and it really did rock me.
1: It's young to lose your mother. That's yeah,
0: tough. but she she really instilled with me the need, well, not the need, the she gave me a love of of life, and I guess, and that's the best gift that she could ever give me. So I just live life to the fullest, as as if as if it's your last day.
1: What's the most important thing you do to stay physically and mentally healthy? I
0: um, actually swim. I, I love swimming. Um, I was taught to swim, um, you know, like many Australian kids did, you know, used to do laps in the pool when I was a kid. But now, um, if I'm feeling a bit stressed or, you know, a um, bit overweight, whatever, I, I'll go to the pool, I'll go to the nearest pool or beach or and I'll, and I'll swim. And I, I guess a lot of swimmers. I'm not sure if you swim, Andrew. I know you run a lot. but um A lot of swimmers like, like no doubt when you run, getting to a, almost a meditation state allows me to, to think. I write a lot, so um, when I'm swimming, I also go into a state where I can actually, I go into a state where I can feel uh, my creative juices flowing. And when I swim, I go through all my problems and also plan what I'm I'm about to write. It just seems to be soothing. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Cricket. Three guilty pleasures, cricket, cricket and cricket. Love cricket. Um, Nothing better than, uh, not necessarily playing. I have played and while I wasn't that that good a player, I had a very enjoyable career playing around at school and then over, I actually went on a tour of England, had great fun. Um, But not watching the cricket necessarily, but I love listening to the cricket. I love listening to the BBC coverage of a night of cricket over in England. Even if it's on the TV here, I'll go to bed, put the earplugs in and listen. And I'll use an old radio, and might even put my mobile phone near it, so it goes a bit crackly. I want to listen yes. to that crackly, like sounds of summer. Yeah, or like like people would have been listening when Don Bradman in the you know in the '30s and '40s went. You know, that was the only way people could hear what he was doing over in England. And um, so I, I do that. Love to sit back and. Sometimes I'll set my alarm in the middle of the night just so I can listen to an hour of the cricket. <laughs> my wife doesn't like that.
1: <laughs> Finally, Tim, what uh, person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: Well, I think we just touched on that. Yeah, definitely, my mum. Um, my mum just taught me that um, uh, do unto others what what um, I can't remember the saying. You know, do unto others what you expect them to do to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I think if if I'm doing something um or talking to someone uh i think how how would i react if they were talking to me like that or if i did that to them if i'm feel comfortable with that then there's more than likely that things will be okay so i live by that motto quite a, quite a lot
1: well there may well be one yaoi in australia but there's certainly only one tim the Yowie man and only one crypto naturalist so tim thank you for sharing your wisdom on the good life podcast today
0: Thanks very much, Andrew, and I hope you're not too scared next time you go out running listening to... I hope you're not scared listening to this podcast. It's not a scary one. Thanks, Andrew.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed the conversation with Tim, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Deborah Rickwood, Bob Carr, Tim Flannery, Matt Napier and Brad Caranatha. We really appreciate getting feedback, so do leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.